0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayer is that this encourages you in the Lord. Hey Amen. You guys can be seated. Is this your ribbon? That's not Ooh, Okay. <laughs> Deal. All righty. Never know what you find up here. Well, good morning. How's everybody today? Good, good. Of course you are. Please note that was not from the pulpit. Um, but uh, the, the joys of pastoring a church in Tuscaloosa, you know, I, I was going to give it a little time, but I'd already started preparing a sermon last week about halftime um, just to help some of you cope with, um, you, you know, your idols, and so uh, i have to save that one uh, for probably 20, 35. Anyway, all right. Well, this morning, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in a few different places. Uh, we're going to begin in Romans chapter 8, and then we're going to jump over to Genesis chapter 3 and then we'll go back and forth a little bit but but really Genesis 3 and then also Romans and in and around that area should help you be able to navigate um it is an exciting time of the year for for most of us and so here here at Covenant Church one thing that we have done even though we haven't necessarily uh pinned the phrase advent to it we have had um December sermon series which we don't typically preach Topically, which means like you take a topic and just kind of preach around that topic. We typically preach verse by verse three books of the Bible. And I'll be honest with you, um, I don't know if you've picked up on this over the years, but I I sort of feel like a fish out of water when I'm not preaching verse by verse. Um, I just don't think I'm talented enough to to put these messages together with the creativity that's needed. Um, Nonetheless, I think that it is... It's good for us to take some time to um, celebrate what this time of the year means. Uh, it, it has been hijacked uh, over the years. And, and again, I'm not trying to be like Scrooge or the Grinch here, um, but, but there's a, you know, a tremendous amount of consumerism and self-focus and, and even depression, along with the excitement, that, that comes around with this time of the year. And so we thought it might be helpful for us to carve out a couple of Sundays To celebrate the Advent season. Now, Advent itself might be a new word for you. Maybe it's something that you've heard. Maybe it's a word that you've used just in normal conversation. Um, But Advent, as far as the Christian calendar goes, is is, is a time that's set out usually in the last Sunday in November. Um, and it's celebrated over the next several weeks that, that follow that leading up up to Christmas. I don't, I don't know if you've ever studied much about the history of Advent either. It's actually difficult to understand or, or follow or know where Advent actually... Began Um, From what I read, the first evidence of some groups of Christians celebrating a season called Advent was around the 4th century. It didn't gain a lot of traction. It seemed to pick up a good bit of traction around the 18th century in Europe, specifically around Germany. Um, And so it doesn't really have a clear beginning. Actually, it does have a clear beginning. Advent is is, is not, uh, you know, the Advent season uh, was trademarked far before anybody called it the Advent season. Um, In in fact, the Bible is is about Advent. It's about the coming of the Lord. From from Genesis chapter 1 all the way until the end of Revelation, the Bible is about the Lord coming down. Um, The Bible is about God's desire to dwell with His people. And so, Advent as a season is man-made, and it has been commercialized in, in some capacity. There are a lot of devotion books. There are a lot of different uh, resources out there, some good, some not so good. But I do think it's important for us to understand that the best Advent book is the Bible, because it's a book that's about the Lord's coming, which is what that word means. Now, Advent can be a really good catalyst for us as we carve out a season that's not meant to end or even begin with that particular season Christian life should be a life of longing and hoping and waiting and looking to the second advent or the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but at the core of this season that we call advent is this purpose, and it's to be disciplined and also to see the beauty of patient, watchful anticipation. It's in this season of Advent that we can begin to train ourselves for watching and waiting. Jared sort of alluded to this last week, and, and really without even knowing it, kind of kicked off an Advent season with, with his sermon in those last verses of Second Peter. But he said this, he said most of us, and he's, he, he's right, at least he's right about me, most of us are, are pretty lousy at waiting. I mean, if you think about it, we live in a world whose entire economy is based on shrinking the time between feeling a desire and satisfying it. I me mean, think about it around the food industry. Fast what? Food. H- how well does it go for you or for your waiter or waitress or the restaurant when your food takes a little bit longer to get to you than you think it should? Now we all know Chick-fil-A has this figured out. They've built their whole system around this reality that humans, particularly Western humans, North American humans, don't like to wait. And so they have a whole system that helps us get our food faster. But it's not just food, it, it's even in the exercise industry. I, I, I don't remember when this came out, but I remember thinking we might be close to the end. <laughs> but you might remember a couple of years ago, there was something advertised frequently it was It was basically a tens unit. If you've ever had physical therapy, then you know what a tens unit is. But this tens unit, I forget what they called it, but but the idea was you attach it to your abs and it tightens your abs, and in the commercial, the man is sitting there watching TV. While he's getting a six pack, not, you know, abs six pack. Probably the other, because that would have sold him too, if you could sit there with your six pack and get a six pack on the couch while you watch TV. But the idea was uh, this is a quicker way to get abs. I, I mean, again, in the exercise industry, we have things like diet pills and these di- different diets that the biggest draw for any of them is not that there's this long season of waiting for a result, it's that it comes quickly. The Internet. What about when the Internet's slow? Some of you, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but it's because of your jobs. You you have to find a house that has fast Internet. Right? I I mean, like uh, uh, Apple will have an iPhone whatever's next and an upgrade whatever's next, and almost every single time part of it is increasing the what? Speed, And so our entire economy is built around shrinking the space between feeling a desire and satisfying it. Even when our desires are good and holy, we are impatient for their satisfaction. Friends, it doesn't take much for us to look around our world and clearly see its brokenness in this area. We don't wait well. Whether we look inside ourselves, whether we look in the lives of our family, our friends, or our neighbors, or what's happening in the wider world, we see the truth of Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, which will be on the screen behind me. Paul says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul says even creation itself is... Groaning, or really another way to say that is longing or hoping. And it certainly means waiting because there's no groaning if you're satisfied. If what you are groaning for is, is there, then you don't groan for it any longer. But one thing that's important for us to understand in this season and really in every season is there are two types of groaning in the world. There's the groaning of those who have trusted and believed in the promises of Scripture, and then there's the groaning of those who have not. And there is a huge contrast between the two. Those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, those who have not placed their faith and hope in the promises that have been revealed in Scripture, their groaning is is the type groaning that probably first comes to mind when you hear the word groaning. There is in all of us a, a longing for something more. And what I just described about our economy and our existence, and it's not just here, it's, it's really all over the world, especially where there's big, you know, econ, uh, economic development and there's a lot of money flowing through. Like, I mean, it's not just the North American way. But every single human being is longing and hoping that what they're going after is going to come through. And what happens for those who haven't trusted Jesus or have rejected the truth of the Lord is what they're going after is what they can see. And what often happens is they get what they want, and there's still this longing. There's this groaning, and heaven forbid, when, when tragedy strikes that individual that has no hope beyond this world... They're crushed. They're shattered. There's, there's actual despair because everything they hoped for and believed in and trusted in and had faith in can be gone just like that. And those aren't all bad things that unbelievers are groaning for or longing for, but they're just not sustainable. They're, as the scripture would describe it, they're a house that's built on shifting sand. There's no actual stability in what this world offers. But the groaning of those who have trusted in the promises of the gospel is much different. In fact, you see how Paul describes it, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, some of you are all too familiar with the pains of childbirth, right? I've seen it. I've had a front row seat six times. I'm glad I was on the side of that bed that I was on and not in it. It does not look fun. Seems painful. Sure it is. I know it is. But listen, what's the difference in the pains of childbirth and other pains? What kind of groans would you hear in the labor and delivery ward versus groans you would hear after a car accident in the ER well the reason Paul uses this description of pains of childbirth is because the groans of childbirth end with a gift they end with a baby And and I still, like again, women, I'm not trying to speak into, I I have no idea. I have a little idea, but I I, I don't want to do what some of you have had to do in regards to childbirth. But what I have seen firsthand is nine months of a lot of struggle that culminates in a few hours of a lot of pain. But then when that baby comes... It's almost like now. I'm not saying this. It's exact, but but it's almost like all the rest of that stuff. It's not necessarily forgotten, but it was worth it because there was a gift, there was a prize, there was something to look forward to at, at the end of that pain. And that's the way that Paul describes Christian groaning, or Christian waiting, or Christian hope. Is that yes, we groan. Yes, we suffer, but there's hope at the end of that. It's not pain and suffering and groaning and waiting and longing that's in vain. It has promise at the end, and that promise is glory. Now, so, so, so for Christians, according to the Bible, waiting is fruitful, Waiting can shift our perspective from our own efforts towards even things like sanctification as we walk with God and we submit to His timing and to His rule. Waiting increases our ability to experience joy while we patiently endure trials. Because as believers we know that the day is surely coming and we will pass beyond the trial. In fact, listen to what Paul goes on to say in Romans eight twenty three through 25 He says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Friends, the truth is this. There is a longing in our world that no cart full of Black Friday bargains can fix. There is a hunger in our souls that no plate full of pumpkin pie can fill. And there is a sickness in our hearts that no physical hand can heal. And, and, and I don't think I'm talking to people that don't know this but we need hope. We need a place to fix our gaze. We need someone or something to set our minds towards that actually does give us the confidence that we need to endure trials. Well, friends, thankfully the Bible does this. In Scripture, Christians embrace the waiting. And it's in seasons that are carved out like Advent, That the church admits, believers admit that there is actual purpose in waiting. And what we wait for is the final Advent yet to come. Just like the ancient Israelites awaited the coming of the Messiah in the flesh, for us as believers under the new covenant, we await the coming of the Messiah in glory. In Advent, we confess that the infant who drew his first breath in the stable has yet to speak his final word. Amen. Amen. And so the next few weeks, we're going to take a season, three Sundays, and focus in this area. This morning, I've titled it, and I don't normally have titles, so y'all should be proud, <laughs> Origin of Hope. Actually, we do have titles if you look on our podcast, but it's just because Zach titles it after I finished preaching it. But the title of this one is The Origin of Hope. Next week will be The Promise Fulfilled, and then the last week will be Living with expectation. So this week, The Origin of Hope. And you might want to jot this question down and maybe jot down an answer as I continue to speak. But what is hope? I mean, is that a question that you have ever considered? What is hope? The word hope in the ordinary English vocabulary is generally contrasted with, which means the opposite of certainty. We would say, I don't know what's going to happen, but what? I hope it happens. But when you read the word hope in Scripture, it's clearly not a wishful thinking. It's not, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I hope it happens. Actually, that is absolutely not what is meant by Christian Hope. Christian hope is not just sweating and wringing our hands and frantically trying to do everything we can to bring about whatever it is that we're hoping happens. Christian hope is when God has promised that something is going to happen and we put our trust in that promise. Or to say it another way, Christian hope is a confidence that something will come to pass because God has promised. That it will come to pass. And so I'm gonna read that last one again. Christian hope is a confidence that something will come to pass because God has promised it will come to pass. Now, a little bit of transition here. Um, Did you realize that there was a time in the existence of, in in, in the, the human existence or in human history? That there was no need for hope. There was no need for hope. There was no need for faith. There, there was certainly no Advent season. There was certainly no Christmas season. But this time was in the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, as Scripture tells us, Adam and Eve lived in what was a paradise. A A paradise far from anything that we know or have experienced. In fact, in Genesis 1.31, the Bible lets us know that everything about God's creation was perfect. When the Lord says it's very good, it means that there are no flaws. And so the world in which Adam and Eve lived would have been the perfect temperature, the perfect humidity. Alabama folks appreciate that. Without pests or without diseases, without anything that would detract from the enjoyment of knowing God in a perfect, undiluted way. Adam and Eve lived a life of blissful innocence, or I should say, a season of blissful innocence. That they had never sinned, therefore they knew nothing of suffering or guilt. Or shame or even of death I mean even if you could argue that there was hope during that time I think we could at least agree that it was drastically different than the hope that we know in fact this little simple sentence helped me understand it but they had everything that we hoped for they had the Lord in perfect union community They had no relational problems. Their relationship with the Lord was perfect. Their relationship with one another was right and exactly what God intended and designed it to be. Their relationship with the creation around them was exactly what the Lord intended it to be. And so hope like the hope that we're called to didn't exist And so when was the origin of hope? I want you to look with me in Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to read through this pretty quickly. But we're going to take it just a section at a time. It's probably a familiar passage to most of you. But just remember, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, hope as we know it did not exist. There was no need for it. And so now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, I tried to think of a good serpent crafty tone. I couldn't come up with one. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, Lest you die, she she still they still have no need for hope. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. In verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves And I want to pause there because um, you you may have felt it. I don't know if you felt it, but in case you missed it, it, it's pretty clear that Adam and Eve, who had zero anxiety, zero guilt, zero shame, zero fear, all of a sudden have those things. What she thought was good wasn't, and so she took it. And Adam shared in that sin. And so when they disobeyed the Lord, you, you can see it. If, if, you, if you slow down and look at verse 6 and then clearly see in verse 7, their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. And now they're frantic. What are we going to do? So they try to cover themselves. In verse 8 their anxiety builds because they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day which would have been something joyful something that before this sin would have been something that they looked forward to but now they're too busy trying to cover their naked bodies because of their shame and hide from the one who breathed life into their lungs Verse 11, he, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, classic, classic man, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. I mean, he ain't lying. You know what then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, I want to pause here. God had given a clear command, and God had given them everything. He had given them everything. But he had a clear command not to associate with this particular tree. Don't touch it, and certainly don't eat its fruit. And if you do, you will surely, what? Die. I want you to see the grace of God in the way that He handles Adam and Eve. The Lord, and I don't I, I, again. I'm, I don't know how this makes you feel. I'm just telling you what I think Scripture plainly teaches about the Lord and His holiness. The Lord had every right to not even ask a question. Where are you? He, he knew where they were. He could have just killed them and been justified because he's holy and they had sinned against him. But I want you to see the grace of God in his pursuit of Adam and Eve. And then in verse 14, you would think that the first place that would feel the judgment or the curse or the punishment or the condemnation would have been Adam and Eve. That's not what happens. He starts with the serpent. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, that's hatred. So conflict between you and the woman, now specifically, now watch where he goes here, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then in verse 16, he confronts Eve. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. and to the dust you shall return. Between verses 6 and 7 of Genesis chapter 3, everything has changed. Now where there was no death, there is death. Where there was no sickness, there is sickness. Where there was no such thing as disappointment, there's disappointment. Now there's frustration. Now there are relational problems. Now there's pain in childbirth. Now work feels like work. All of this is now entered the world friends every bit of suffering and sin can be traced back to this moment and it's here in this moment that the idea of hope is born and so where is hope found well the answer is embedded in verse 15 As the Lord addresses the serpent, he's speaking of the offspring of the woman when he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heels. Some of your translations say, crush your head. Hope didn't begin. In fact, the Christmas story or Advent did not begin in a manger in Bethlehem. That wasn't the origin of hope. The origin of hope came in Genesis chapter 3 through the promise and prophecy of chapter 3 verse 15. In fact, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is the very first place in all the Bible that we see and hear the gospel. And so hope did not begin with joy and with peace. It began with sin, with guilt, and with despair. And and I I don't think personally that we can truly enjoy this season or even understand what Advent means until we understand the tragedy that took place at the beginning of, of human history, the very act that created longing, that created waiting, and the necessity of hope. And that act was sin and the rest of the Old Testament is about the promise from the Lord to crush the head of the serpent. Every other Old Testament prophecy and promise can be traced back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 to where that day the Lord promised to crush the head of Satan. And in that, in fact, the hope is this, that the Lord declared war on Satan in the garden. He promised that he would have the final ultimate say through the seed of the woman, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And and, and this launched God's people, Genesis 3.15 launched God's people into hundreds of years of waiting with a confident hope in this promise. And those that were faithful to this promise in the Old Testament, you found them praying for it. Praying for the advent of The Messiah, teaching their children about the promises of the Lord regarding the advent or the coming of the Messiah. You see them living like the promise of the coming Messiah was actually true. One of my favorites is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. It says this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt... The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nation. Listen, friends, verse 2 of chapter 9 of Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Listen, This was their hope. This is the prophecy, another prophecy that's traced back to Genesis 3, 15. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now here's the hope. You see this as they long and they wait for the first advent of the Messiah. This is their hope. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And they prayed that way and they taught that way and they lived that way trusting That the Lord would fulfill his promise but one thing that was always difficult for those Old Testament believers and maybe even for some of us was the part of the promise that said that his heel would be bruised in the process of crushing the serpent's head in Isaiah 53 it tells us this of the coming one he was despised and rejected by men verse 3 we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the coming one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken, listen, for the transgression of my people? Verse 9 says of the victorious Messiah, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit, in his mouth. Where's the hope? How would one that's longing for the day and the coming of of, of this Messiah longing and waiting for his first advent where's the hope? The hope is found in verse 10 yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The only way for a just God to undo what Adam and Eve did was that the promised seed would have to bear the judgment that they deserved. And so in the process of fulfilling his promises first made in Genesis 3.15, he will, and he has, and he will finally one day completely crush the head of Satan But in God's providence and the mystery of His grace and His power and His holiness, there would be a season. And the Jews didn't like this. They didn't understand this about Christ when He came. And some still reject Christ because of this, around this idea of what it meant for His heel to be bruised. But it was always the plan. It wasn't that Satan got one up on the Messiah and nailed him to a cross. It it, it was the will of the Father. It was the will of the Lord to crush the Son. That was the plan all along, that the promised seed would bear the judgment that his people deserved. But in doing so, the New Testament teaches us in Colossians chapter 2. Don't try to turn there. I'll give you the references for later. Just look on the screen and... I pray your hearts move toward worship like mine was this week. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him serpent's head crushed later in Colossians should be on the screen yeah Romans 6 yeah sorry Romans 6 8-11 Paul says it this way now if we have died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I forgot to put red in it, but you see right there where death no longer has dominion over him. The serpent's head, say it with me, crushed just as the Lord promise. So, 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 so what's our hope? What does it mean for us to fix our gaze on this promise of victory from the Lord? Well, in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, Paul says it this way, the God of peace, and, and if you're a believer today, my prayer is that our hearts that are full of anxiety and longing, And those of us, and I'm throwing myself in there with you, that are so tempted not to trust the promises of God or for them not to be enough, that we hear the word of God this morning. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. And so in closing, I think it's possible that for some of us in the midst of waiting, in the midst of frustration and disappointment, just for various reasons, we've become convinced that we need a new promise. We've become convinced that I, I need something else, something better, something that I can see, something that I can be more sure of to hope in. But the Bible has a different message for us. The message from Scripture to us, to people just like us who are longing and waiting and wondering and fearful and frustrated, and it's, it's so odd that in the time of the year that we are supposed to be, according to a hallmark, that the happiest— the most joyful, it's in those times that the, like our anxiety peaks. We're more frustrated, we're more depressed, and we're more disturbed than normal. The Bible tells us plainly that it's not a new promise that we need. It's that this morning, we need to hear the same promise again. That God has promised that you will be brought safely through. That God has promised that we will reach our journey's end in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter one, verse six, Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ later in chapter 4 verse 19 Paul says and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus 1 Corinthians 1 so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you would bow your heads. Friends, I know how messages like this can feel. Some of you may have had just a tinge of excitement. There is hope. I actually do have hope. Some of you, it can build your frustration because you're thinking, I've tried this. I've been there and I've done that with this Christian thing and it just doesn't seem to help. And so the truth is, we're all in this season of waiting. But some of us don't know how the Lord is going to come through. What I pray that we've heard this morning is that we have His promises. And according to Scripture, when we get to the end of our lives, we will be able to say to the Lord, I had no idea how you would save me. I had no idea how I would make it to the end. But according to the Bible, we'll be able to look to the Lord and say, but you never failed to keep your promise. And so this morning, in this moment, my hope is that your gaze, the gaze of your heart, your mind, your eyes, is fixed on Jesus. And the hope that comes in Him and through Him that cannot come from anything else. And so, Father, what I've prayed for in my own heart and for the hearts of those that can hear my voice this morning is not something I can do for me or for them. And so, Lord, I pray and ask In the name of Jesus, that you would fix our gaze on you. God, that you would change our desires. Lord, that you would help us and teach us and show us how to wait and how to long for you. That we wouldn't be satisfied with anything else that we hope comes through for us. But that, Lord, that we would have the confident hope of Scripture. That we could say with Paul words like, I'm sure of this that I know He will. Father, give us faith where it lacks. Give us belief where there's unbelief. And let this Advent season not be something that just begins and ends as quick as it started, but that it's a catalyst for us to understand that primarily what it means for us to live in this age as Your people is that we long for and wait for patiently, Your second advent when you come in glory. And that we know that there's purpose in this waiting. So teach us, Lord. I pray that you minister to our hearts in these final moments. It's in Christ's name. Amen. You can stand for worship. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.